0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Los Angeles Mysteries radio program. On today's show, we bring you the story of a man whose mysterious and untimely death might have been the result of a tragic accident, a suicide, homicide, or even a government conspiracy. At any rate, the responsible party is in the following episodes. Jack Parsons wants a family. Jack Parsons wants to change the world. Jack Parsons wants to go to the moon. So, Jack Parsons makes a deal with the devil. By the end of our story, he will help lay the groundwork for Caltech's Jet Propulsion Labs, as well as the nascent stages of NASA. But, he'll also cross paths with the great beast, Aleister Crowley, He'll form a close bond with L. Ron Hubbard and become himself an author and leading figure in the Western esoteric movement. Can the young Rocket Man hold on to his new prestige as a chemist, even as he begins spending more and more time with sex magicians and occultists? Can he manage to balance these two opposing lives, all while holding a marriage together? Will his Faustian bargain ever catch up with him? And what do you get when you cross a solid with a liquid? All of these mysteries will be covered in the next five acts that you might think of as The Tragedy of Jack Parsons. And now, Act One, The Rocketeer. Halloween, 1936. Pasadena, California. At 9 a.m., a truck swiped from the California Institute of Technology boldly heads down a government road near the Devil's Gate Reservoir. The 20-somethings populating the flatbed are running on just a few hours' sleep. The day before, having trekked several times from Pasadena to L.A. and back, hauling the necessary instruments to get their project off the ground. Jack, an amateur experimenter, stands in the bed of the truck, steadying two large barrels as if his life depends on it. One tank is filled with methyl alcohol, the other gaseous oxygen. His life does depend on it. All of theirs do. They drive a half hour away from the main road and civilization, more and more cautious as the trail turns to dry, uneven dirt. Though Jack isn't a Caltech student, in fact a college dropout, he and the others have become notorious on campus for their often volatile and outlandish experiments, earning them the derisive nickname, Suicide Squad. The boys abut the truck against the edge of the valley and slowly haul the apparatus 400 yards down into the Arroyo Seco, For over four hours, they stack sandbags, assemble and check equipment, gauges, cylinders, hoses, while a reporter and two Caltech students show up with cameras. And by 1 p.m., an almost five-foot-tall rocket motor sits upon a three-foot-tall stand, the exhaust tail angled skyward. Final arrangements are made for the pressure gauges check valves, and flow meters. Jack lights the fuse and rushes back behind the sandbags with the other rocketeers. The tubes tense, but a rush of air flowing from one blows the fuse off the motor. Methyl alcohol gurgles all over the inert engine. Rushing back to the motor, Jack ties the fuse down as the others quickly recalibrate the apparatus then hurry back behind the sandbags. On the second try, the fuse is dislodged once again, methyl alcohol leaking everywhere. A third attempt results the same. The photographers climb out of the arroyo and head back for town. The squad's nine-month project is a complete bust. Jack wipes down the engine, but tries one last fuse. The fuse ignites some of the excess alcohol, and a 12-inch flame erupts from the nickel-plated exhaust for three seconds before an oxygen hose breaks loose, wildly whipping around like a snake spitting fire, sending the researchers running. Rocket science had landed in Los Angeles. This is the story of how Jack Parsons exploded. A self taught chemist, rocket innovator, and co founder of the Jet Propulsion Labs, who finds his nights dedicated to strange body meetings and black magic. His odd life and mysterious death are investigated over the course of the next five episodes. Today, Jack's childhood fascination with explosives lays the groundwork for Caltech's JPL and the U.S. military's first rockets. But with no college education, did a dark force provide the amateur rocket man with the know-how to chase his dreams? This is Occult LA. When he was a youngster, he used to read about King Arthur. It was a dream of his as a child to belong to a group of men who were doing something noble and wonderful. He also wanted to go to the moon. Los Angeles. Jack Parsons was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons in October of 1914 to Ruth Virginia Whiteside and Marvel H. Parsons. Having headed out west from Massachusetts, the family has not yet fully settled into their home on Romeo Street, actually their second LA home in 10 months, when they are displaced once more. It soon comes to light that the senior Marvel has been visiting prostitutes during and after his wife's pregnancy. A few months later, Ruth initiates a legal separation, grounds for divorce. Adultery. Feeling completely disgraced, Marvel returns to the East Coast, but proceeds to write Ruth hopeless letters. Do you think it is quite fair not to write me once in a while about how the boy is? Pretty hard to sit here and think that my own son is not being taught to say Papa. He never receives a response. Ruth cuts any association between her son and his father. From here on, The boy would be called John, or Jack. Hearing of his daughter's separation, and partly due to the growing allure of the American Southwest, Ruth's father, Walter Hunter Whiteside, moves with his wife to idyllic Pasadena. Mr. Whiteside, a wealthy Chicago manufacturer, surely would have known of chewing gum millionaire William J. Wrigley's Renaissance mansion on Orange Grove Avenue, Perhaps that's why he too moves his family into the extravagant Italian-style villa on the same street. In the early 20th century, Pasadena is surprisingly known as a liberal bastion in an otherwise conservative city. The smaller township has no desire to draw in large industry, resulting in Pasadenans that are pro-labor and union-friendly. The young Jack, however, lives blissfully unaware of social politics, mostly confined to the mythic mansion walls of Orange Grove, known then as Millionaire's Row. Fawned on by his mother, he seldom plays with other children, choosing instead to pass time in his family's courtyard garden, a mini-paradise where, in the shade of a tree, he delves into classic literature, fantasy stories, and his favorite of all. Scientification. In the very first issue of Amazing Stories, the world's first sci-fi magazine, publisher and founder Hugo Gernsback defines the form for his audience. By scientification, I mean the Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Edgar Allan Poe type of story, a charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. A fresh new genre that prides itself on being a playground for inventive individuals. Build your own toy skyrockets would sometimes be advertised in the back. Not only do these amazing tales make tremendously interesting reading, they're always instructive. They supply knowledge that we might not otherwise have obtained, and they supply it in a very palpable form. For the best of these modern writers of scientification have the knack of imparting knowledge and even inspiration without once making us aware that we are being taught. The bold new observatory, nestled in the Angeles National Forest, recently built atop Mount Wilson by local Throop University trustee, George Ellery Hale, is a testament to the growing interest in the cosmos. And Throop's quick growth from a vocational school into the California Institute of Technology, with brand new courses, resources, and full accreditation, provides a much needed launch pad in Southern California for any eager and creative young minds. At the age of 12, Jack begins attending school. He has been privately tutored in his early years, coddled by wealth, but perhaps also because of his untreated dyslexia. He arrives at Washington Junior High School, pudgy, Overdressed, in a wool blazer, knit tie, and leather shoes, he steps out from his grandfather's limo, clutching a sci-fi magazine. Needless to say, a rife target for bullying. The kids call him effeminate, sissy, and mommy's boy. They often beat him up on the playground. One afternoon, a large group gathers during recess, shouting and jeering at something in their midst. One student, Ed Foreman, the designated yard monitor that day, is drawn to the commotion. Parting the crowd, he finds a bruised Jack, a few years his junior, wrestling with a bully who's kicking, punching, and pulling Jack's long, soft hair. In one graceful, brutal motion, Ed lifts the pupil from little Jack and breaks the kid's nose with a punch. The classmates scatter. Ed helps the ruffled youngster to his feet. Jack had met the first night of his round table. Ed Foreman is rebellious. Jack is laced up. Ed is tall and handsome. Jack, adolescent mush. They both have dyslexia. They form a bond that lasts the rest of their lives. And they discover they both love blowing stuff up. Jack slowly turns Ed onto the sci-fi pulp magazines. And with the engineering knowledge Foreman has learned from his dad and Jack's finances and aptitude with black powder, the boy's fondness for fireworks slowly develops into homemade explosives and desert rocket launches. They spend more and more time perfecting their craft in the arroyo, launching rockets higher and higher. Ad Astra per aspera" is their guiding mantra. Through rough ways to the stars. Ed would recall of the time. It was our desire and intent to develop the ability to rocket to the moon. Aim to reach moon with new rocket. Modern Jules Verne invents rocket to reach moon. Back in 1926, the same year Jack and Ed met, engineer and physicist Robert Goddard made history by successfully launching the first liquid fuel rocket. He too was inspired by science fiction, particularly H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. There was only one problem. They called him Moon Rocket Man and wrote joke jingles like, oh, they're gonna shoot a rocket to the moon, love. By the late 1920s, while Foreman and Parsons are blasting up the arroyo, no serious academics are dedicating time to rockets. They're considered useful only as flares and fireworks. Rocket science doesn't exist. But Jack is determined to build a rocket to the moon. And if science won't get him there, then he'll find something that will. The teenager heads to his bedroom. If he's caught, it could be embarrassing or worse. He's about to take a major leap. He'll perform an act that will follow him the rest of his life, ensuring he will not be disturbed. Jack Parsons attempts to conjure the devil. finally manages to halt the ceremony. Terrified, Jack puts all thoughts of the occult aside and immediately regrets what he has done. He fears he was successful. Wall Street in panic as stocks crash. Stocks sink despite banks' rally. Hoover blames business depression on causes outside a nation. Stocks crash again in 16,410,030 share day. In 1932, Jack is 18. The depression is taking its toll. The family is forced to move into a smaller home in Pasadena. All development stops. The Colorado Street Bridge becomes the suicide bridge. With the piling pressure, financial hardship, and Grandpa Walter aging fast, Jack takes a job with the Hercules Powder Company. He suddenly goes from explosives amateur to full-time professional. While studying at the Pasadena All-Boys School, Parsons had developed a penchant for chemistry, seeing how he could immediately apply chemical know-how to his amateur rocket fuel. But in the crucible of the Hercules Company, Jack learns the difference between a high and low explosive. He handles and mixes volatile chemicals, noting every minor detail. The job provides him with a hands-on excuse to perfect his hobby. Parsons so impresses the staff that by 1933, he is offered $100 a month to work at their manufacturing plant near Oakland, eight hours north. He readily accepts. Muddy, molten slag flowing downward, fan-like flames reddening the sky. At night, the landscape around looks like a scene in hell. As an added perk of being up north, Jack considers applying to Stanford or Berkeley before quickly calculating he can't afford them. Having had the same problem with L.A. schools, Jack decides to keep working. The loss of family fortune developed my sense of self-reliance at a critical period. This is a seeming flip from the childish graduate who earlier that year listed in the yearbook his theme song as You Rascal You. At the end of that year, Jack and Ed walk into Pasadena's first Baptist church for a Christmas party and dance. It's here that Jack meets Helen Northrup, 22 years old, Jack's just 18. Helen immediately catches the young man's eye with her dark brown hair, smiling blue eyes, and tall, thin frame. Recognizing Jack's interest, Helen flirts solely with Ed, playing hard to get, then leaves without offering any form of contact. She would later admit to intentionally being a teaser that evening. Somehow, Jack manages to get a hold of her address, showing up with Ed the next day. Perhaps enticed by the audacity, Helen invites them in to play cards, and she and Jack quickly hit it off. She's fascinated by their talk of rockets. Jack recognizes they share a love for the classics and a favorite composer, Stravinsky. The two are engaged by the summer of 1934. Ever the non-traditionalist, along with the three-carat diamond ring, he gifts Helen a 25 caliber handgun for protection. soon to be a newlywed and homeowner, with new responsibilities and expenses. Jack rushes back to the Hercules plant, 400 miles up north. Isn't it sickening to love each other as much as we do and then be parted? I miss everything about you. If the night is clear when you get this letter, go out and look at the pole star. Let us make that our star. Let it symbolize our love. Ad astra per aspera, the stars are our goal, and nothing in the outside of the galaxy will keep us from it. March 28, 1935. Rocket plane visualized flying 1,200 miles an hour. A Caltech grad student reports on recent independent and self-funded Austrian rocket studies, which came to promising results. After reading the headline, Jack and Ed rush to the bustling Caltech campus in search of the student. But when they arrive, the young man from the article is preoccupied with his current non-rocket-related project and directs the boys to a different graduate student who had shown similar interest in the piece, Frank Molina. The mild, twee, 22-year-old Molina has quick chemistry with the boys. Just before finishing his undergrad, Frank had presented a paper on space travel. Now that man has conquered travel through the air, his imagination has turned to interplanetary travel. Many prominent scientists of today say that travel through space to the moon or to Mars is impossible. Others say what man can imagine, he can do. The Daniel Guggenheim Fund had provided Caltech with an aeronautical facility. GALCIT, the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology, could provide the team with the necessary chemicals and equipment for their project, if only the non-students could get permission. And a little cash. The boys write up proposals, sweating over each new draft. They bicker, revise, and bicker some more. But by the end of the process, the trio have what they believe to be a plan worth pitching to Dr. Robert Milliken, famed physicist and 1923 Nobel Prize winner. Milliken is brilliant, refined, and smokes pre-rolled cigarettes at the end of a thin black holder. He shoots them down instantly, believing their pursuits to be Buck Rogers' mumbo jumbo. Not completely hopeless, they set their sights on the 54-year-old Hungarian, Theodor von Kármán, one of the top aerodynamicists in the world. Kármán is tickled that the boys are not deterred by Milliken's dismissal. He wears a green beret and smokes cigars. He says yes. I was immediately captivated by this earnestness and the enthusiasm of these young men. Jack and Ed had initially proposed the design of a high-altitude sounding rocket, propelled by either a solid or liquid propellant rocket engine. Their plan was to send meteorological recording equipment higher than any balloon had before. However, Molina sees a value in starting on paper before igniting fuels willy-nilly. He proposes a series of theoretical studies which address the thermodynamic problems of the reaction principles and the flight performance requirements of a sounding rocket. They butt heads for the first time. Ed and Jack have no interest in thinking a rocket to the moon. Hands-on testing, testing, testing is all they had ever done before. Still, the two finally acknowledge that the limited financial backing they're applying for requires them to treat each launch a bit more preciously. A workable engine with a reasonable specific impulse. The plan is to build an immobile rocket and engine separately. In order to measure the push and thrust of the gases, Molina recommends they first run a static test with the engine flipped on its head, exhaust tail spitting upward. By the time of their first experiment on Halloween, 1936, two more Caltech students, Apollo Smith, and the grad, whose article initially drew the boys to the campus, William Bollet, would both join the round table and help make jet propulsion history. So on Jack's recommendation, the newly anointed Gal Sit Rocket Research Group set off on their quest in a borrowed Caltech truck and crossed the dry riverbed toward the Devil's Gate Dam. record attempt slated. A machine gun rocket built to fire more than 11 gunpowder cartridges will be shot in the California skies. It is the invention of John W. Parsons, chemist, and Edward S. Foreman, engineer, both associated with the Guggenheim California Institute of Technology Rocket Research Project. October 14, 1938. Powerful smokeless powder held best propellant for rocket ships. Frank Molina, noted rocket experimenter, told a group of students and scientists that the use of smokeless powder, similar to that used in shotguns but more powerful, appears to be a promising propellant for the sounding rocket. By October of 1938, Two years after the test in the Pasadena Riverbed, the Galsit rocket trio finally receives some well-deserved recognition. The years had shown some promise, but were also fraught with long, wageless hours, self-funding or an extremely tight budget, and more practice than theory, often resulting in bumbling pyrotechnics. They had all quit spending money on personal excesses, and began re-rolling tobacco from scrounged cigarette butts. Jack even convinced Helen to pawn the diamond ring he had proposed to her with. First refusing, she eventually gave in. Rocketry work is the only thing I am willing to go without food and sleep, work like hell, throw money, and cut throats for. But by 1938, the Rocketeers have developed a solid albeit motley, presence at Caltech. They've gained a new prominent member, Jian Sen, who will later become the father of the Chinese space program, and are about to be noted by both the public and the government as experts in their newly developing field. But first, Jack will begin attending occult meetings in a Hollywood attic he'll continue his search for a father figure and make his way into the good graces of a mysterious magician, Alistair Crowley. As he works to expand his surrogate family, he crosses paths with rebels, G-men, and convicts, who some suspect know more than they admit about Jack's untimely demise. Next time on Occult LA. Written, directed, and voiced by John E. Marino with additional voices performed by Michelle Miller. Along with autobiographies, George Pendel's Strange Angel and Sex and Rockets by John Carter were invaluable resources. Music courtesy of Archive.org. Theme song by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries where you can find photos of the Galsit Rocket Trio and links to our other free podcasts, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery and Alien L.A.